welcome to the Queen's Church Sermon Podcast. Our church is being built on two vision statements. Jesus is our passion and love is our mission. We hope this message leads you to Jesus and that next week you'll join us in person to experience God's love through this local church. You can follow us online at qns.church. Amen. You may be seated. If you do not own a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, raise your hand. Anybody? Here you go, ma'am. Right here. Mario raised his hand too. Summer, can you grab one more? We have some Bibles at the back table right there. If you're ever here and you bring someone who doesn't have a Bible at home, please give them one. Show them how to read it. And um, I heard a friend say earlier today, right here out in the lobby, I'm just learning how to live by the word. Amen? Amen. You can't live by the word if you don't have the word. So get one, read it, love it. And open it up right now with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We've increased our pace a little bit, as I told you guys last week. And this week we're going to handle three Beatitudes. Everybody say, go fast. Go fast. Okay. So, remember that Jesus is painting a portrait here of a disciple. The biggest uh, mistake we can make with the Sermon on the Mount is to treat it like a list of commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this, right? Jesus is not giving us a new version of the Ten Commandments. He's painting us a picture of who a disciple is. This is why that's important. Because he's not saying, here's what a Christian does, or here's how a Christian is supposed to act. What Jesus is doing is showing us who a Christian is. Have you ever been at a place in your life where you act a way that you are actually not on the inside, right? We can fake it. Uh, I heard a TED Talk one time. uh, It was entitled, Fake It Till You Make It. We can fake it until we make it. That's not what Jesus, he's not saying, hey, try to do these things, and eventually you'll fake it long enough to where you'll become this. That's not the point. He is saying, this is who you are in me. This is you. He's painting a picture of all of the people who put their faith in Jesus. And he's saying, this isn't how you're supposed to act. This is who you are. The gospel hinges on understanding that there is nothing you and I can do to be or act Christian. I know that's a dangerous statement because if we we just read the Bible in a little bit different way as a list of to-dos or commands, we can get way off on that track. We are made Christian by the grace of God, through our faith in Jesus. We are Christians, and our actions flow from that identity. See the difference? You are Christian when you place your faith in Jesus. You say, it's not about me. I can't do it on my own anymore. I am following Jesus. And Jesus says, now because you made that bold statement and declaration of faith, this is who you are. Cool? Remember, that's what we're doing. Um, So we're going to move to these next three Beatitudes, And I want to make some connections because they're written in a very poetic way. Anybody here like poetry? I went to a poetry reading um, a few weeks ago with some friends. It makes me sound real New York to say that, right? I went to a poetry reading on the Lower East Side. And it was fascinating. You know, one um, one of the interesting things about poetry is sometimes there are layers of things that you don't pick up on until you read it multiple times, right? You ever read a poem that sounded really great when you heard it the first time? 
Then you read it or heard it again, and you think, whoa, I missed the connection between line one and line three. I was too busy on line two when they said it. You know what I'm saying, right? So there's actually some things Jesus is doing here that are very poetic like that. And he's connecting the first three Beatitudes with, uh, with hunger and thirst for righteousness in the middle. He's connecting the first three with the next three, the final three. So here's uh, the connection that we're going to look at first. Verse 7. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. The connection is um, poor in spirit, which is the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With this new one we're learning today, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So poor in spirit connects with mercy. And I think I'm going to try to show you how. Um, you, if you have a note, uh, a note card, you can take notes on this. The first thing that we're going to talk about today uh, is how mercy breaks into action. Mercy breaks into action. A lot of these Beatitudes, like we discussed last week, right, they've been pretty internal. They're kind of introspective. It's really about our hearts. And mercy is where those introspective things just break forth into action. And we get to start acting out our faith. So poor in spirit leads to mercy because poverty of spirit is how we have the ability to show mercy to others. In other words, if we are rich in our own spirit, if you can remember back to several weeks ago, if we feel really good about who we are and we're rich in ourselves, we don't focus on helping others. If we see someone who needs mercy, right? You see someone who's down and out and you're rich in yourself, the most common response for us today is to say, we need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do it by yourself like I did, right? You're not trying hard enough. Um, you know, you're not getting, uh, you're not working in the right job. You need to get the right education. You're in bad relationships. We do a lot of, this is how you're not like me, which is not mercy. But if we are poor in our own spirit, in other words, we've been, we've taken ourselves down and said, I am removing my thought life. I'm not going to be self-centered in the way that I think. Then we can look at others who we think would normally be below us. We can see them on the same level. And when we're there, we can show mercy without expecting anything in return. So Jesus blesses the poor in spirit by giving them the kingdom. And that is mercy. When people who are poor in spirit the, the poverty, the, uh, the, the ones who are in poverty, receive the keys to the kingdom, that is mercy, right? You would say that they didn't deserve that. That's right. We didn't. But God gives it to us, and that is how we are to give mercy. A couple things about mercy that are important for us to understand is that showing mercy is a selfless act, okay? When I show mercy to someone, I'm not getting anything back in return. It's totally selfless. Mercy is also contagious, though. Showing mercy is selfless. It's also contagious. Because when someone receives something they know they do not deserve, it produces a desire to share that thing with others. Right? When you receive, you ever had um, somebody who loves to cook something that happens to be your favorite food? I know we could touch all over on food. We did last week about hunger. Um, like maybe you love sweets, so somebody who can bake your favorite cake. Or maybe you love barbecue like I do, and you got somebody who has a pit out in the back, and they can cook barbecue. When that person gives you 
a whole bunch of extra leftovers, you feel blessed by that, right? And if it's too much for you to eat, what's the first thing you try to do? Share with others, right? I mean, you love this thing. Don't you want others to have some of this thing? That is the biblical version of mercy. God is saying, you were poor in spirit, and I gave you the kingdom. And you look at the kingdom, and you go, that's too much for me. And God says, yes. Now, show mercy to others. Bring them into this kingdom with you. It's like those ribs that your friend made. you got to share them with everyone. Everyone needs to know that salty, flaky goodness, right? Finger-licking goodness. The kingdom is such a good gift that we bring others in. And in that way, mercy is contagious. Other people catch it. They begin to see how much they've been given in God, and they start bringing other people in with them. I mean, to be honest, a lot of you sitting here in these chairs right now are a total um, testament to this concept. Because, um, when was that, uh, Candace? Maybe like August of last year? There were five people who sat around my kitchen table, and we prayed that God would build a church. How many of you were at that first prayer meeting? You can look around, summer. So there's more than five of us because there's four of us plus Lindsay and I think two others, yeah. So six or seven people prayed. And then what did those people do? They went out and said, God has given us so much, we want others in. So you guys have received this, right? And now the point is, because mercy is contagious, we go out and we say, I've gotten so much of this that I just want to keep giving it to others. Um, we could go on and give more. I could, I could keep going, but like I said, I got to do what this morning? Go fast. Okay. Not too fast. Just tell me to slow down if I'm going too fast. But as followers of Jesus, mercy is something we should be very familiar with because of how much of it we have been given. And poverty of spirit helps us see how much of it we have been given by God. It reveals the heart of a merciful God who is willing to go to the extremes to bring people into his family. What was the extreme he went to? He went to the cross, right? The sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. He says, that's how, that's how, much, that's how much extreme I'm willing to go to to show you what mercy looks like. I sacrificed my son to bring you into this kingdom now, you are those who see that, and you give mercy to others, like it's ribs or candy or cake or whatever it is that's good to your palate. Because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you invite others in. Um, <clears throat> there's something that happens later in the Gospel of Matthew I want to just turn our attention to um, really quickly. And it's, it's sort of the essence of mercy. Um, Bobby, it looks like I had it mixed up. So just go to Matthew 25 right now, even though it's below the next point. Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to read you a chunk of scripture. Matthew 25, this is in verse 31. And listen to what happens when um, Jesus, Jesus is telling a parable here, and he's trying to hit on the point of mercy. He's trying to display what true mercy is. And a parable is a story that Jesus uses to tell a point. Okay, So um, he's saying... Listen to this story, and you'll get what I mean about mercy. Let's see if that's true for you, okay? Um, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, so the sheep will go on his right, and the goats will go on his left. Then the king, that's Jesus again, will say to those people on his right, who are the sheep, he says, come, you who are blessed. That sound familiar? Blessed are the same word in the Greek, remember? So it's got all those things. Come, you who are to be congratulated. Come, you who are happy by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, confused, will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty and feed you and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the King Jesus will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It doesn't end there, though. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Woo! Happy Sunday morning. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will answer with the same confusion. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into way, away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The essence of mercy is that God shows it to us, and it is to be shared with others. When we see this great and merciful thing that the Lord has done, it is so clear for us to share that mercy with others. We see someone who is sick and in need, and we remember what? When I was sick and in need. And we remember that no one came to visit me, and how did that feel? Have you ever been there? Sick and in need? hungry, thirsty, any of those, that there was no one there? Jesus says, when we show mercy to the least of these, the least of these could be different for each of us in this room. Uh, let's understand that real quick. The least of, uh, of these could be, or, or it is, the people who you will look over. All right, so for some of us, that is the poor, right? People without any money, we want to look them over. The homeless people that are begging, we want to say, like, you know, uh, well, you know, their decisions put them there. Um, some of us, though, it will be the rich. Well, they're entitled. You know, they just got everything they, they have handed them on a silver spoon. And some of us, it's the person who sleeps in the room right next door to us. A family member or a roommate who we've just lived too close to for so long. And, and to them, they're the, they're the last thing on our mind. The last person we would be willing to show mercy to. So the least of these, I don't want, don't pigeonhole it and say like it's only one type of person. 
The least of these are the people who you and I look over. Jesus says, show mercy to those people, and it will be contagious. So the question is this, who do you need to show mercy to today? Remember, the word of God doesn't get spoken out loud and then return void. In other words, it's spoken because God has designed it for you to be in this room to hear this word. And there's, there are people in our lives who we're just looking over and they need our mercy. And God has positioned you to give it to them, to show them mercy in a unique way. Not out of the emptiness, like you might say, I don't feel like I have anything to give. Then you need to be filled with God. Right? We'll get to that in a minute with peacemakers. But the point is we give mercy because we have been shown it. So the first movement is poor in spirit to mercy. The second one is from mourning to purity of heart. From mourning to purity of heart. So I said uh, earlier to the serve team that the name of this message, the, the message I think will seem, um, if you look into it from a fleshly perspective, like without the Holy Spirit's cleansing, it will seem like a, like a lot to do. How could, I all, how could I do all that? I already have bills to pay, and now there's all these, th- I gotta show mercy, and I gotta figure out how to do these things. So I entitled the message, Live Simply. And I believe it's really exposed right here in this beatitude. The beatitude is verse eight. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want us to hear today that purity of heart simplifies your life. Purity of heart simplifies your life. So it's connected to mourning because mourning our sin leads to a desire for purity, right? Have you ever um, worked really hard on something and you got covered in sweat and maybe like sawdust or you got covered in dirt because you were digging um, or you got covered in sweat and subway grime because you were just in the city all day and you feel dirty, right? And what do you do when you get home? You wash yourself, you take a shower, you, even if it's just washing your face. Um, and what happens, what, what comes over your skin? Cleanliness, right? You're purifying your body because you know that you're dirty. This is what mourning does to us. When we mourn our sin, we come to the feet of Jesus and, and Jesus cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. And someone who has been cleansed likes to stay clean, right? And as people, we, you know, we keep getting dirty over and over again. We keep taking showers over and over again. Or if you're not taking a shower, that's why no one's sitting next to you. But, but everybody's sitting close to each other, so it's okay. But um, the pure in heart are those who bring a childlike simplicity to life. Someone who's pure in heart sees that Jesus has cleansed them and made them pure. And so... When they see someone who's not doing things the way that that they would like for them to be done, they just simply say, man, that person has sin in their life. And they don't condemn the person. They don't cast judgment on the person. They pray for the person. They mourn that person's sin, and they say just simply, how can I show love to them? How can I lift them up? How can I be a lifter of their head? You see, purity of heart gives us this simplicity in life. It's what these children have. You know, uh, there's a phrase like the innocence of children, right? Those of you who have little children, you know that phrase is just totally wrong. Because children are not innocent of anything. Um, I'm just kidding. But 
the point is they don't know. Like the, the children don't know, uh, the younger ones, they don't know what's happening next year in an election year when everyone's going to start screaming at each other like crazy and calling names and we're going to elect another you know, president and, and half the people in the country are going to hate them and half are going to think they're the king. They don't know that's happening. That makes them innocent, right? The, the, the kids don't know that when they hear sirens at night that someone may have, have just committed a crime against someone else and violence may have happened like right down the road from them. They don't know that. Kids don't know that um, when you close the door at night, you lay down in your bed or on the couch or in the floor and you cry yourself to sleep because you're depressed and you feel like the whole world is closing in on you. You wake up the next morning and you're smiling at them and you tell them good morning, or maybe you're frustrated with them, but either way, they don't know the depth of that kind of hurt. And that makes them innocent, right? That's why we say that they're innocent. You see, purity of heart simplifies our life because it gives us this childlike innocence as a gift from God. God says, yeah, you have a lot, you have so much going on in your life. I know it's complicated. Now, come to me and sit because I want to give you rest. I want you to see that all the things you have going on in your life are not what's important right now. Purity of heart simplifies things. It slows them down. So um, when this simplicity happens, something interesting comes through the clouds. The pure in heart are congratulated. They're happy. Why? Because they see God. You see, the clouds of this life block our view of seeing God. Those things I mentioned, you know, you guys can, you know how to feel a room. You feel when I said about depression, and you can feel that it got real. And there's people in here who are struggling with that, fighting with it every day. And they don't say it out loud because it's too hard. That's what it, it puts pressure, right? And you can feel like, oh, the temperature of the room just changed a little bit. Purity of heart, what it does is, is it, it breaks the clouds. Because did you feel like, you know, when I sat down, and you can just see that, oh, God wants to give peace. And the tension is released. It's because the clouds of depression block you from seeing God. The clouds of a toxic relationship can block your view of God, and all you can become consumed with is that person in front of your face that is so annoying or so detrimental to you or so abusive that you can't see past it. The clouds are the bank account balance in your pocket right now, right? Don't you hate how phones have put everything so close sometimes? Before, you could be like, my bank account balance is over there on Broadway and Steinway at Chase Bank. But now your bank account balance is right there in your phone, you know? Get a notification. Oh, it's too low. Some of these things are so close to us and they just block our view. But what God says is, when you are a believer, see this in your identity. He has purified your heart and that simplifies things. And the way that it simplifies things is it parts the clouds and allows you to see God for who he really is. The king almighty in control. The one who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. In layman's terms today, what we would say is, come to me, all you who are depressed and lonely and anxious. And the picture is that Jesus says, come to me with all that weight on your shoulders and just slip out from underneath it and put it at my feet. 
and take on my yoke, my, my heaviness. And you put on his heaviness and you say, oh, this burden is light. God says that is purity of heart. The light, peaceful burden that comes with God. So the question for this is, what is clouding you from seeing God? Is it your politics, like I mentioned quickly? Is it self-centeredness? Maybe the thing that's, the big cloud that's between you and God is yourself. Maybe it's a toxic relationship. Maybe it's addiction, depression, loneliness. God says, I'm willing to get rid of this cloud, but you got to get real with me. You can't keep hiding it. Next. Distractions lead to distortion. So seeing God comes from a single devotion to him. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what he means is, love the Lord your God only with all of who you are. Love him only. Pour it all into him. A single devotion focused on God enables you to see these things. But distractions distort our view, right? So the purity of heart thing, like the peace that feels good, but how do you do it in life? It's like this. Have you ever been around someone? I actually left my cell phone back there. Can I use your cell phone for a minute, Adri? Have you ever been around someone who, when you're talking to them, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in a serious conversation or not, but you're talking to them about something, you're telling them a story, and they just, you know, they get notifications, so they... And at the end of your story, you know, you're saying, what do you think? Yeah, that, um, let's do it. Let's go. And you're like, I, I didn't say we should go anywhere. I was telling you a story about how, you know, my wife and I got into a fight. I wanted to know what your thoughts were about it. You, knew, you know what happened, right? They got, they got distracted, and it led to a distortion of what the conversation was about. They were thinking you were still on, you know, hey, we're headed out. We're, let, let's get ready to go. And when they got distracted, it paused their mind from what you're saying, and they focused. It's because, like Danny and I were talking this week about the sermon, uh, multitasking is impossible. Scientifically proven. There's no such thing as multitasking. You can't put a, a full amount of focus into two things. Your focus can switch quickly. That's cool. But you can't focus on two things. That's why they don't want you to text and drive. And that's why in New York, we don't want to text and walk. <laughs> yeah, just pause and go. Because dis distraction leads to distortion. You didn't see that manhole cover, but now you're, now you're in the bottom of that manhole. <laughs> which actually happened to a girl on Staten Island. Look it up. It's a funny video. But distractions lead to distortion. The pure in heart aren't distracted because in their purity of heart, they see Jesus and they focus on him. They love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they're just focused on Jesus. They're the kind of people who you just want to be around because every time you're around them, like we talked about with humility, I won't get too far down that rabbit trail, but they're a truly humble person because when you've been around them and you leave, you think, they were just so concerned with me. They didn't talk about themselves. That's someone who's pure of heart. Okay, they're focused. They're, distraction, they're, they're not getting distracted. Um, and then here's the last one, okay? You ready for the last one? Uh, meekness leads to peacemaking. Here's how this works. The meek are peacemakers because they are constantly using their strength for the good of others. That was from last week, remember? So here's how it works in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called... Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The, someone with a heart filled with en, uh, envy and greed and apathy, they could never be a peacemaker, right? 
Why? Because in order to produce peace, these things build off one another, you have to have a pure heart. You can't give someone peace if all you have is anxiety. You may be able to possibly give you advice. Chances are, though, it's probably going to be bad advice, <laughs> right? You might be giving them a vice to try to get peace from. But you have to have a pure heart. So in Jesus, you have the power to make peace. Um, this peace-making process, it, it's, like, it's treating peace like a commodity. You know, commodities are bought and sold, right? Like you can actually go to the store and you can buy coffee. They will give you something when you give them money. So it makes it a commodity. You can get it. And then it can wake you up in the morning. And then at 3.30 in the afternoon, you can brew some more and it will wake you back up again, right? And then at 11.30 at night, it will still be keeping you awake. <laughs> Lamont knows. Um, so in Jesus, you have been given the power to make peace, to produce that commodity. Some of us, though, have been living for so long in the midst of wars and starting our own wars or putting out fires that were started by someone else. Some of us have been living in that for so long that we don't know how to live in peace. Amen? Amen. Or oh no. Amen. We've been living in a war so long, we don't know how to make peace. We're like the United States of America, right? We just live in wars, and it's hard to make peace. Our world is just caught up in violence. Why is that? Because we've been in it for so long, we don't know how to make peace. It's like living your whole life eating fast food, but never knowing you're unhealthy. Think about that. What if you had never tried anything healthy? You just eat McDonald's all the time. No shame on McDonald's. I ate there this week. I like it. But one day you hear about the detrimental health benefits that a McDouble has to your physical body. And so you say, I'm going to make a change of habit. And you do. And all of a sudden, you have more energy than before. You get better sleep than you did before. Your head is, uh, your, your body is stronger and your head is clearer in how you respond to people. And it's all as a basis of changing your diet. Some of us need a diet change from wartime to peacetime. We need to step out of the unhealthy habit of dwelling because, man, can drama be invigorating, right? What hap why do we dwell in wartimes and anxiety and drama? Why? It's because it produces in us adrenaline, and we get to ride that adrenaline high for a little while. We get to get angry with that person, or we get to get very exuberant with that person because we celebrate a victory or we mourn a loss, and we, we ride that high, and then shoo, we come straight down off of it, right? Highs go to the lower lows. When G what Jesus is showing us here is a picture of his followers as peacemakers. John chapter 16, verse 33 says this, Jesus talking, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So how do you produce peace? Let me tell you what not to do. You and I cannot produce peace by way of our own hands. In the world you will only have tribulation. But Jesus says, who overcame the world? You? Me? Did we build a tower big enough to overcome the world? No. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And the, where, the place that you find peace is in me. In me you will have peace because I have overcome the world. 
because Jesus made peace when you declared yourself an enemy of him, then you and I are free to make peace with our enemies. You see how he, how he built us as Christians in that way? The very way that we become Christians is by Jesus going to the cross to make peace with us, his enemy. So in the, in the DNA of a believer is someone who goes to the sacrificial battlefield and dies, sacrifices themselves to make peace with their enemies. It's who you are when you are in Christ Jesus. It's not how you act. It's who you are. Blessed, happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They will receive the inheritance. Um, and finally, we can rejoice through reviling. You guys ever heard this word reviling? I had to look up the definition because I, I know the feeling of the word, but I didn't know exactly what it meant. It means to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. Jesus says this about it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, what? <laughs> and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You and I know the end. Because we see the end clearly, which is an inheritance in heaven with Jesus, we can look through the re reviling, and usually that means look through the person who's doing the reviling, because remember, we don't war against flesh and blood. People in front of us who are reviling us are just a distraction to, to distort our view of God. Now, if you take that too far, you will look past the people. That's not what I'm saying. Here at Queen's Church, we want to teach this principle that we prioritize people over the projects that are going on, right? So I'm not saying you look past them. I'm saying you look through them. In other words, you look through their reviling and you can see it for what it truly is. It's not really an attack on you. It's an attack on your maker. And you can see when they do that, that used to be me. Sometimes it's still me. So you look through them and you focus on God and God says, you are the person who shows this one mercy. You are the one to make peace in this situation. And you say, God, how do I produce peace? They're yelling at me. They're screaming at me. They're reviling me. They're throwing me under the bus. They're doing it again for the 50th time. How do I create peace? John 16, Jesus says, I overcame the world and everything it's throwing at you. Come to me for peace. When you and I see that Jesus is the peace, it is so much easier for us to look at that person with love and see that we were once that person. And in fact, on a day-to-day -day basis, we are still making ourselves enemies of God, confessing and mourning our sin because of our poverty of spirit and being built up by God into the portrait of a follower of Jesus. So next steps, what do we do? I just have the, the three questions, two of them I already asked. I want us to consider these things. Danny and the band are gonna play another song here in a moment. And you've been here, um, you who have been here a few times, you know this, this time of response is, is a free area for you to worship. 
You can worship by um, focusing on these questions. You can ask God to speak to you. And we'll have a prayer team who will be at these tables in the back. And we, we want to ask you to come to them. If you are lost in, in, in what to do, come and ask for prayer. They're not holier than anyone in this room, but they're willing to go to the Father for you and with you in prayer. So we'll be back there. Come and receive prayer. But you know, before you even do that, think about these questions. Here they are. Again, who is God calling you to show mercy to? Ask that one already. What distractions may be distorting your view of God? That one's dangerous because it might be something you love. That's, distractions aren't always things that you hate, unfortunately. Sometimes the good things distract us as well. The last question is this, and it's a poignant one because it's tough. How can I turn the reviling that the world is spitting at me into rejoicing? Maybe you can think of something practical. I need to look to Jesus in this way because I am getting beaten down every time that attack comes at me and I feel hopeless and helpless. How can you look to Jesus and see his peace? Let's pray. Jesus, when we try to do the things listed in these words, it is overwhelming. So I pray that most importantly this morning, you would help us to see that you are actually building us up with these words. You're not giving us a to-do list. You're showing us who we are and that our response is always to turn to Jesus. So I pray that each of us in this room would turn to you right now. For some, that might be the first time and they can turn to you and say, God, I don't know how to start, but I want to trust you. God, for some of us, it's the, it's the millionth time to turn to you and say, God, I don't know how to start, but I want to trust you. Turn our hearts toward Jesus. And would we see that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to you except through him. Trust you, God. In Jesus' name.